So we're in 2 Timothy, as I said, chapter 4, and we'll pick up at verse 1. I'd like to, if you wouldn't mind humoring me for a minute, if we could all just stand, and I'm going to read through the, the eight verses we're going to cover. Um, if you'd stand with me, just in honor of his word. This is the intro. <laughs> I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires." and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Thank you. So we're going to dive right in here in verse 1. And I've got points, but they're pretty much going to come right out of verse 1, pretty successively, but you can apply them to the rest of this passage in the first eight verses. Um, Say here, four things stand out to me. Yes, three. Three points. Let's look at verse one one more time. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Did you see the three points that stood out to me? Do they stand out to you? I mean, I solemnly charge you, but in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to judge living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. It's just a pretty weighty things. And as um, it's been said many times, um, we have good reason to believe this was the last letter that Paul penned right before his death. And his death came at the hands of none other than Emperor Nero. And it's interesting as you go through Acts, it was Paul's desire to make it to Rome, and it was his prayer that he would be given an audience by the emperor and his court. Paul, fully understanding, realizing what that might well intend, um, to have an audience with Nero, a man who we know from history would later on use Christians as a scapegoat for the plagues and, and ills that fell on the Roman Empire. Kind of sounds a little reminiscent. Here's your first point, recognizing God's presence. Right out the gate here in chapter 4, he solemnly charges Timothy recognizing God's presence. <laughs> I have stories, but not as many as uh, some of our older shepherds who have lived longer than me. So pardon me if I'm repeating something you've heard before, but I can't get it out of my head, and Lord willing, I never will. Um, growing up, another story of Jake's growing up, <laughs> Uh, I remember when my dad uh, needed to settle a matter with my brother and I, either because we were arguing with each other 
That never happens among brothers, right? <laughs> um, or trying to come to the bottom, of, get, get to the bottom of something. We, we come bringing something to my dad, and he's going, hang on, what, what actually was said? What was done? And he would say this to my brother and I, fairly often, and, and more often as we got older. <laughs> I don't know what that means, Dad. He'd say, tell me the truth. Nothing but the truth. The whole truth. And then he'd say this, so help you God. Everything, I'm like, okay, all right, I got it. But the moment, the moment he invoked God's name, it changed the air of the room. It changed the, the feeling and the attitude, at least for myself. My dad would invoke God's name, and he did it intentionally to recognize God's presence. And he said more than once, you might be able to pull the wool over on my eyes, but you won't be able to pull it on his. And as we've heard here oftentimes, and I believe God said this to Cain, be careful, your sin will find you out. Now, Paul's not writing to Timothy because Timothy's a sinful man, but he brings a very weighty word. He invokes God's name. He reminds Timothy, God is with us right now. As I write this to you, he is the judge, and I'm already getting ahead of myself. Paul recognized God's authority and presence in his life and in Timothy's. He recognized Timothy is a man after God's heart. Jesus lived the same way. Here in John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. So imagine Jesus with his disciples. Have you ever been with someone who in the midst of talking with you, they just immediately translate from talking to you? There's no break. It's just a seamless conversation. And now they're praying to the Lord. This is what Jesus does. He prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Further down in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Can we see how this is being repeated again through Paul's life? As you sent me, Lord, so send I Timothy. And we know Titus and many others. For their sakes, Jesus prays, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. I consecrate myself to, to what? To God's holy purposes. This is before Jesus went to the cross. He knew what it meant to sanctify himself. That they themselves also may be sanctified in truth, set apart to God's truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, and I love this part, but for those also who believe in me through their word, which speaks to you and I this morning. Jesus had you and I on his mind when he said these words to the Lord. And the reason I point this out is our awareness, our recognition of God's presence truly makes all the difference. It really does. What did Moses say? And this verse reference isn't there, but we've been going through the Torah, right? We've seen Moses say, I think it was in Exodus, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to leave this spot. Everything about his presence. It's kind of in a similar way, although not nearly as profound. Living my life with my wife, it's not enough for me to get a letter from her. I want her presence. And when she goes for days or a week at a time, every once in a while where she's not home, it changes the mood. The home's not the same without mom. My life's not the same without my wife. Our lives are not the same without Jesus at the center of it. 
It makes all the difference in, in what we believe, in our worldview. It makes all the difference in the decisions we make. When we live recognizing that Jesus is right here with me, he's here with me, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about this, or I'm fascinating or pondering something, he's right there in my thoughts, he's right here next to me, Lord willing, he is upon me to do what I can't do on my own. Proverbs 3, 6 tells us, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He says, all our ways, acknowledge him. That is, put him at the forefront because he is. And the promise comes with a blessing and he will make your paths straight. It's, it's a lot like the other verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Why would he do that? Because our desires are in him. When we acknowledge him as first and foremost, truly the Lord and Savior of our lives, he makes our path straight. Why? Because his path is our path. This is how people ask, and I have asked myself many times, how do I walk by the Spirit? Practically, well, how do I do this? Here it is. This is how we walk by the Spirit. With his presence, recognizing his presence and living life as if he's with us because he is. He's here among us right now. He sees everything that I'm doing. He hears everything coming out of my mouth. He knows the thoughts I'm having that no one else knows. That's how imminent and present he is in my life. How imminent and present he is with us. This is how we walk by the Spirit, recognizing God's presence. That's the number one point. Number two point, God judges our lives. I debated whether or not to share this, and this will probably mean more to folks' second service, but you all know what a meme is? Some of you do? Okay. Just imagine a funny picture from pop culture, and then there's a caption that goes with it. And uh, there was a meme from a popular uh, show, reality TV show, and they used a character from it. And he's, in the meme it says, y'all be like, only God can judge me. And I'd be like, yeah. And that should scare you. Have you heard people say that? You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Yes, that is so true. And he is judging. He's judging. He makes the judgments on our lives, what we do, what's worthy, what's worthless. He makes judgments between those who belong to him and those who don't. This is why Paul lived how he did. He lived realizing God's presence and his presence as the judge who superintended over Paul's life. He was a man under God's great conviction. Conviction, not condemnation, right? We know that. He, Paul wrote that. There's no condemnation, our culture would say. There's no judgment on those who belong to Jesus. He's not looking to throw down a lightning bolt. I've heard that said. Why do we get this image that God would strike us with lightning? That's a pagan idea. That's not the God of the Bible. God doesn't strike us with lightning. He consumes us with fire. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This was just taught on just recently. What's the difference between the Bema seat and the great white throne. We're looking at here in 2 Corinthians 5, the Bema seat. This was the seat that held the authority to give rewards. All of us here this morning will stand before Jesus, God Almighty, 
the Holy Living One. We will stand before him. We won't have our family and friends next to us. It will be us directly to him. And he will go through our lives here on earth and judge us according to how we lived our life here for him, for eternity. There are rewards that come. I mean, guys, what do we do with each other? We're made in his image. We reward each other, especially growing up with children. Don't we reward our kids? God is the perfect rewarder. And in Hebrews, he says, you must, if you ask, come seeking him, you must believe that he is, again, recognizing his presence, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. He says, so that each one, in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Right here, this body. According to what he's done, whether good or bad. And like Peter and John, amazing. I I go back to this so often in Acts chapter 4. Jesus has already come and done his ministry, gone back to the Father. Holy Spirit has come down in power on his church and continues to clothe his church with power to do his ministry in the world. And Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. That would cause a lot of people to tremble and shake. Very powerful people. I mean, they, as they've seen, they have the power even to judge people, unfortunately, Contrary to Mosaic law, they would still try and judge people to life and death matters. That being said, in Acts 4, being brought before the Sanhedrin because they taught and then healed a man in Jesus' name. The Sanhedrin thought they'd done away with this Jesus guy. No. (laughs) Far be it. No way. They heal this man, and again, their concern is not, wow, this man's healed. Wow, God's presence is among us. They're so self-centered they hate Jesus so much, they're, they're here to interrogate these men to put an end to this. And they interrogate them, they beat them. And in reply to the Sanhedrin's abusive interrogation, they didn't give in. Because they didn't feel pressured by powerful people. There's a lot of powerful people in this world. There's a lot of pressure mounting. Why didn't Peter and John cave? Because they lived with Jesus as their judge. So it wasn't like, huh, you're off the hook, huh? It was, my concern is not the Sanhedrin. My concern is God. They will do what they need to do. My concern is following, being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the judge of the living and the dead. They were under strong conviction, but it also gave them peace because no matter what happens, they saw what happened to Jesus. He said, the servant's not greater than the master. What they did to me, they'll do to you. But it also goes on, as we see in Jesus' life, what happened to Jesus, he has given us the same power of resurrection. You want to take my life? Okay. I remember growing up, my dad saying, what's the worst they could do? They can't kill you and eat you. And I'm going, well, yes, they can. It's called cannibalism. The point is, and we've said it, it's like the worst you can do is kill the flesh, as the scriptures tell us. But have awe and holy reverence to the one who can condemn the body and the soul. He's the judge. Live your life in that manner. And here's your third point. As we look here in just verse 1, Paul recognizes and looks forward to Christ's appearing. And we're going to see this again come up in verse 8. It was in college, I remember, 
when I began to, you know, spiritually connect the dots, I'm like, there are Christians I've seen who are on fire, and then there are others who, they go to church, they have their Bible, they might even do Bible studies, but when I talk to them one-on-one, they just seem lackluster. It's kind of like, they do this, and then there's the rest of their life. And it was an epiphany to me, and a conviction to me, going, I don't want to be like that. The attitude is, Yes, I'm a Christian. I prayed to receive Jesus. Now, can I get on with my life? I think we've all lived like that at some point, even if it was for a moment, instead of recognizing God's presence, recognizing and remembering he's our judge, and remembering he is coming soon. He's coming soon. Do we live with that anticipation? We don't pray to receive Jesus to feel like a good person. We don't pray to receive Jesus to become part of the church. We don't pray to receive Jesus to become a Christian. We pray to receive Jesus because we trust in him, what he has done, and our hearts are filled with gratitude. Why? Because if it weren't for Jesus, I would have to face God in his wrath for my sin. That should make us, you know, come before the throne with awe and trembling, but with great reverence. God Almighty came down and took on the filth of my sin and paid the ransom for my sin. He took God's wrath on himself, so I don't have to. Do we live like we actually believe that Jesus is coming back soon? We're here in a fellowship. We talk about it all the time, all the time. But sometimes we lose sight of it even as we say it and we think about it. Think about it. I'll pose an obvious hypothetical that you've heard many times, but I want to pose it again. If you knew Jesus was coming back at some point this evening, what would you do today if you knew he was coming back this evening? Is there anything that you would change? Now, remember, Jesus is the example, right? Jesus knew his moment was coming. So we don't see Jesus... um, fervently, or I should say in a frantic, trying to do as many good things as he could. But he was diligent to do everything that the Father had called him to do. Like we saw in John 17, glorify me with yourself. I'm sanctifying myself. I'm setting myself apart again to what you have called me to do, Father. Sanctify them in the truth. There was composure, but Jesus lived with great conviction. What we dwell on What we work for, what we treasure reveals our heart's desire. I'm doing my best right now not to reference something my brother Les has said. We all know Les'isms, right? But he says, you want to know where someone's heart is, look at the direction their feet go in. There's a lot of folks who can speak a good word and know what the Bible says. But look look at the direction their feet go in. Look at how they talk. As we looked at prophets, Right? How do you know if a prophet's from God? Well, one, what they say has to come true. But what's the attitude in which they bring the prophecy? And does it glorify the person bringing the message or the one who sent the message? 1 John 3, verse 2, speaking in reference to Jesus' appearing. 1 John 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, what's the hope? 
Jesus is appearing, his glorious appearing. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, the pure in heart shall see God. It's interesting to see throughout Scripture how many young people see the Lord. And for that matter, folks who are towards the end of their life, they see the Lord. Why? Children have this innocent purity. They're not perfect by any stretch, but they have an innocent purity. And then you see people who have followed the Lord and they get towards the end of their natural life and they see the Lord. Why? They have a perspective of reality. They know, you know what? This flesh really is fragile. It's feeble. This won't last. And now they're not. It's, it's, it's a lot harder to live just caught up in the, the mundane and the crazy and the rigorous of now when you know what is to come is on the doorstep. It, you're, you're walking up to the door where you're going to finally meet Jesus face to face. That's the third point, uh, preparing for his appearing. We've got recognizing God's presence. God judges our lives and preparing for his appearing. What do our lifestyles and choices and goals right now reveal what we're preparing for? I, years back, when it was just Judah, my daughter hadn't been born yet, I remember looking at him, and he couldn't even hardly walk yet, let alone form words. And I remember looking at him, having all these desires for my son. And uh, I've heard my father-in-law say this of his children. I just have one desire, right? That my, my kids would seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord their God. I want, I want that for my kids. And the Lord goes, so what are you doing to invest that in them now? You want them to follow him with that kind of holy reverence. You want them to be spirit-filled, walking by the spirit, loving the word of God people. What are you doing to model that in your life? Look at verse 2 with me. He says, Paul writes this to Timothy, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. I remember looking at verse 2 for years going, in season and out of season? What, is that like ministry is like summer and winter? Or like which season are we talking about? And I knew it didn't mean that. But I tell you what, youth ministry down in California, when summertime rolls around, summertime down in California for youth ministry is not the time you pull back. That's when you pour it on. Why? You've got all this time with kids who don't have school anymore, you're doing everything you can to spend as much time with them as you can to share God's word, to love them, to build them, encourage them, build relationships. And then summer ends, and what happens? It comes into the fall season, all the festivities. I come up here, and it's interesting. Um, I come up here, and I realize, man, so many youth ministries, it's like they, they go into hibernation mode when summertime comes around. And this isn't to, to condemn anyone who does that, because I also learned, yeah, a lot of people, like, once they graduate, they split. They get out of town. You're like, all right, summertime. We're going to do ministry with the young people. Five people show up. You're like, where's everyone else? It's summertime. We should, we should pack the house out. Well, they want to go enjoy summer with their families. Man, I'll tell you what. Summertime up in the Northwest, I've learned, there's a, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of anxiety. We got we to gotta live. We got to do all our living in three months because the rest of the year, we're out of season, man. 
I'm checked out. Later. All that to say, Paul and Timothy followed Jesus' example to preach the word in season and out of season, which means literally when it was convenient and when it wasn't. When it was convenient and when it wasn't. Without sharing their name, I had a brother back in spring of 2020. I got laid out with a kidney stone that took, it took up the better part of February for me. And I wasn't feeling good, to say the least. And they came on their day off, someone who's in full-time ministry, and they came on their day off to come pray for me, pray with me. Come to my, my house, and I'm, I mean, I'm barely put together right now, but when you see me right out of bed, it's not a pretty sight. And they came and loved me. They valued me. And that spoke a lot to me. One, I felt loved. Two, and just as equally as important, it modeled to me what it means to value people. We see Jesus doing that. Paul is telling Timothy these things, but Timothy, as we saw in chapters before, if you were here in September, I've been teaching through 2 Timothy. Paul modeled this. So Timothy's reading it. He's I'm imagining every time Timothy reads this letter and 1 Timothy, he's, he's got snapshots, clips, videos in his mind of all the things that he saw Paul do that Paul wrote to Timothy. He taught it and he modeled it. These guys, Paul and Timothy, were goal-oriented. They had a singular focus as well. And their goal was sharing, teaching, and proclaiming the gospel. It was the gospel, nothing but, pure and simple, the gospel. What did Jesus do in preparation for the cross? Why did Jesus come? We've heard a lot of Christianese answers, and we know what the, I'm, I'm talking to people here who are Bible students, you know what the Bible answer is. Why did Jesus come? What did Jesus do in preparation for the cross in order to go back to the Father? Here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John, that was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to prison to visit him. No, he didn't. It says Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn away from your life of sin. Receive the gospel, the good news of God. In verse 21, later on in Mark chapter 1, they went into Capernaum, up in the northern uh, town, northern uh, part of Galilee. And immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, we know what follows after that. The light of <laughs> the light of the world comes in and starts speaking the light, revealing the light of God's glory in that synagogue. And what happens? One of those dark little boogers called demons pops up, right? Starts calling him out. And Jesus says, silence, quiet. And he calls that demon out. What was Jesus doing before he worked a sign, cast a demon out? He was teaching the, the gospel of God. And then in Mark 1.38, Jesus said to them, <laughs> this is funny, after he's been doing these signs and wonders, Jesus says to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. What did Jesus come for? To preach, teach, fulfill the gospel. And the gospel, we all know, 
is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He came preaching it. And at, you could say, the midpoint of the Gospels, he started to disclose to his apostles or disciples at the time, the Son of Man must suffer and he must die. This is in fulfillment with what the Scriptures have said. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, when Jesus had come back to Capernaum, and this is, by the way, right after he had just healed a leper in verses 39 through 45, he told him, after he healed the leper, go to the priests, go through the Mosaic law, present your offerings as the law says for someone healed of leprosy. But do not go tell people who I am and what, what, what happened here. What does the guy do? <laughs> he goes out and tells everyone. <laughs> then Jesus comes back to Capernaum after going to these cities, these towns, preaching the gospel. Several days afterward, it was heard that Jesus was at home, Simon Peter's home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. People showed up. The, the news of this rabbi is busting the seams throughout Galilee, so much so that all the hoity-toity Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees down in Jerusalem, you know, the epicenter of spirituality and all the commotion, they come up. They're like, who is this guy? Some of my people have left me, and they're, they're coming to meet this guy. Who's, you know, who's, who's shoving me out of the way? They, there's some jealousy building up and curiosity because there are people that they've seen healed, and they're going, what's going on here? It says here at the end of Mark 2, verse 2, this throng of crowd is around so, so much that there wasn't even room near the door. What was Jesus doing? He was speaking the word to them. In season and out of season, Jesus taught here, Jesus preached here, Jesus proclaimed here. What was he doing everywhere he went? He was preaching the gospel. He was teaching God's word. And verse 13 of Mark 2, Jesus went out again by the seashore. So this is on the heels of healing the man who was the paralytic on the pallet, right? He gets lowered down through the roof. <laughs> Raise the roof. The roof comes down. He heals this paralytic. And then after that, what does he do? Then he goes out by the seashore. He's walking the Galilee. And all the people were coming to him. And he was teaching them. Teaching, preaching, proclaiming. Why was preaching and teaching the gospel so important? Because Romans 10, 17 says, it's hearing by the word of Christ that saves. Hearing the word of Christ. I want to focus on this for a minute. It's not miracles and wonders. Miracles and wonders don't save people. Lazarus was raised from the dead. How many times have we heard Pastor Rick say this? Only to have to die again. <laughs> We're all like, wow, Lazarus goes, really? <laughs> Mark chapter 8, 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. See, the signs and the wonders simply followed and validated the word of God, lowercase and uppercase. His signs and wonders validated what the scriptures had foretold. His signs and wonders revealed who he is, the word of God. John chapter 1 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, 
Paul writes, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When Peter and John healed that man in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 4, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, it says, the Sanhedrin looking at them went, they realized they were uneducated men, but they also recognized these men had been with Jesus. Too often, we're looking for people who are great speakers. Like TEDx, if you've seen that on YouTube. People who have this gift to orate, to, to teach, or to speak. But what is the substance of the message they bring? If it's not the word of God, think about how important it is to your life. Consider that. Jesus taught in season and out of season, when it was convenient and when it wasn't. Paul, when it was convenient, when it wasn't. He tells Timothy, you've seen me live my life this way. Remember what our life is for. What have you been called to? I have a letter um, in my office and ordination, schmordination, whatever. Um, but I have the letter above my desk of Rick's. He, he had uh, Brian Martin read it for my ordination. And I have it above my desk because the words are, they're out of 1 Timothy. It's a charge. What is your calling? What is your calling? This came up in our uh, home group. By the way, home groups. If you're looking to get plugged in and, and just have more stimulus in your faith, I'd encourage you to, to check it out. I know that my wife and I have been really encouraged by the time we've had in our home group. That being said, the question came up. Um, prophets. Is it, is it okay to say I'm a prophet? It's interesting. People refer to Rick and Les as Pastor Rick and Pastor Les. But you don't hardly ever hear them refer to themselves in that way. Why? Because the title isn't the issue. The issue is what did Jesus call them to do? What did Jesus call our shepherds to do? What did Jesus call our staff to do? They don't go around with a badge like, this is who I am with their position. We get to know them on a personal level. Paul is not telling Timothy, you know, make sure to wear your pastor badge. Make sure everyone in that church knows you're a pastor. He says, do these things. Who you are is based on, we judge each other based on what we see each other doing. Timothy didn't go around flaunting his ability or calling to be a pastor. He went serving in the model that was given to him by Paul, serving out of humility with great diligence. And going back to Jesus as the example, because again, that is where Paul comes from. What did Jesus do based off of verse 2? He reproved. He reproved his disciples. He rebuked demons and hypocrites. And Jesus exhorted people regardless of ethnic, spiritual, or cultural background. Remember the woman at the well? I think it's John chapter 4. She's a Samaritan, and as we find out, living a life of infidelity and immorality. Jesus exhorts her. Jesus goes out of his way to go speak with the Syrophoenician woman. And he exhorts her. He comforts her. He speaks into her life. And he exhorts her. He goes out of his way. Now, I've been thinking about this just because of what my life looks like. And it's like, does that mean I need to just day in, day out, wherever I have a shred of a second to go preach the gospel? Remember, there were times Jesus pulled away. And in Mark chapter 1, the gospel's 
getting preached. Miracle signs, wonders are busting loose and everybody's looking for Jesus. And his disciples wake up to find him in the house. And they're like, where is he? They go looking for him because Jesus got up early in the morning before anyone else got up to go pray and be with the Father. And there were many people that Jesus didn't heal. That man in Acts chapter 4, Jesus walked by him during his time on earth. He saw that man. That man had been sitting there for years. Jesus didn't heal him. Why? Because Jesus said in John 5, 39 through 40, I only do, or I think it's 5, 39 through 40. Correct me. I only do what I see the Father doing. He only did what the Father told him to do. There are going to be a lot of demands and pressures on your life. There are on mine, on my wife, unfortunately, more and more on our kids. And this isn't even in my notes, but I'll tell you this. We need to encourage our kids to know how to read Jesus' word and walk by his spirit because the pressure of this world is so heavy, kids are looking for a way out, if you know what I mean. The greatest reason cause for suicide in youth, ages 10 to 21, is not depression anymore. It's anxiety. Why? Their minds are torn in a million directions. I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. I remember a kid I went to high school with, guy was a 4.2 GPA student. I'm like, how do you get above 4.0? I can't hardly eke out a 2.8. I sign my name, I show up to class, I never do homework, but I, you know, C's earn degrees. Not true. <laughs> Work is unto the Lord, students. <laughs> I learned that better in college. But I remember this friend who, the guy was in every sport, he lettered early on. He had all the badges. I mean, he was the epitome of success at high school. A year later, he went to a private Christian school, one that I looked at. I met up with him. He, didn't, he wasn't a part of a church. He dropped out of school. The guy was an underwear model. I'm like, what in the world? The guy was burned out. He was burned out because he took on too much because he didn't know how to hear the Lord speak into his life. He read about Jesus. He went to church. He was a good church boy. But when the rubber met the road, he crumbled because he was submitted to the voices of the world, the pressures of academia. I got to do this. If this doesn't get done, I got to do this. Have we all felt like that? If I don't do this, it won't get done. How many things did Jesus not do during his three, three and a half years of ministry? Food for thought. It's something I have to constantly go back to. In the same vein, on the same token, there are times where I'm like, I want to get home to my family. And I have to set boundaries. But Jesus goes, I want you to go speak to that person, though. I want you to spend time with that person. How do we know what to do and when to do it? How do we know when to preach in season and out of season, so to speak. When is it just inconvenient that God's called us? And when is it something we're doing on our own strength or brought on by the guilt and the pressures of the world? Do we know his voice? Can we follow what he says? Paul knew. He wanted to bring the gospel. He wanted to go to Rome so bad, the Spirit prevented him. How many times did the Spirit prevent Paul from going to do God's work? Think about that. But we know Paul worked tirelessly. He didn't give up. He didn't give out. And he followed the example of Jesus' long-suffering. That word is patience, but I like long-suffering better. We saw that in Mark 8. What did Jesus do? 
How many times did Jesus put up with, deal with, spend time of his own energy to reason with people, with, with, with a group of people he knew one day were going to cause him to suffer and kill him? Jesus took time. He met with Nicodemus, one of the chief Pharisees. In the dark hours of the night, he met with him. Nicodemus wouldn't, didn't want to be seen at light. Jesus knew that. What if the other Pharisees see me talking with this guy, this rebel rouser, this threat to our hegemony of power? So he met with him at night, and Jesus met with him. And Jesus took time to reveal the truth to him. And he did it gently. Rick said this last Sunday, and it stuck with me. If it doesn't cost me anything, it's not sacrifice. How many things do I do for the Lord? And they're good, but it's not really sacrificial. As I've been, Cam and I have been teaching our kids, tithing, it's not an offering. That's God's. We have what we have because God gave it to us. All the money we have is because he gave it to us. He gets the first 10%. The first 10 is his. He gives us the rest of the 90 and this has been something that's uh, convicted me. I won't get into detail right now for sake of time. But what are we sacrificing? Or what will we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? The reason we are on this property and have what we have is because of the anonymous sacrifices that brothers and sisters have given financially. And I'm not telling you this so that, oh, I got to go give more money. No, no. Like I told you, that brother who came on his day off to come pray with me. And he worked hard. I had another brother, I'll say his name, Mark Landis came to me. I was sick. He covered for me one Tuesday night. And if anyone knows, you parents know, Tuesday nights, you know, it says gets done at 8.30. Eh, well, sometimes it doesn't. And the kids keep hanging out. Parents come in. It's like, I'm waiting for you in the parking lot. And it's going to take you guys like 10 to 20 minutes to get home. You're like, come on, Jake. I'm like, I told them they were released. My brother, after that, Everything gets done. It's like 9.30. I tell him, I don't know why, but would you come just spend time? Would you come to my house and pray with me? And I know this sounds, he got there. I said, I know this sounds crazy. Could you just open up the word and read somewhere from the Bible? He came into my bedroom. Yeah, you're going to think I'm real weird. If you thought I wasn't weird before, you will now. <laughs> I invite Mark to come into my room. I'm laying in bed. Um, and he gets on the bed and sits next to me. And... He starts to, he opens up the Bible and starts to read from the Bible like it's a child's story, like a bedtime story. And then he puts his hand on me and prays for me. By the time he's done, it's like 10, 30, 11. He's got to drive back to Oak Harbor. It was like almost 11:30 when he got home. That was a sign of a sacrifice that I haven't forgotten. Clearly, this happened back in like 2014, 15. What will we sacrifice for the sake of his gospel, of his good news? Look at 2 Timothy verse 3. After all this, Paul says, Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, Rick did a prophecy update from this section, I think, earlier this year, and he gets into some of this stuff deeper than I am this morning. So I encourage you to check it out. There's some really good stuff in there. But at the risk of repeating some things, I don't know. Let me tell you this. This week, there have been so many times I wanted to go and listen. What did this pastor say? What did this teacher say? And God goes, nope. 
What did I say? What am I giving you, Jake? So I pray this is fresh for you as it's been fresh for me. Paul refers here, for the time will come. What time? Chapter 3, verse 1 says, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Paul warned of trying times. Jesus promised, in this world you will experience trials and tribulations. But he doesn't stop there. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul warned of these trying times when people won't endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. They won't endure. Literally, to endure. By the way, endure here in verse 3 is different than the word endure in verse 5. And I'll show that in a little bit. But the word here for endure literally means listening, receiving, reading, from God, his word, on a repeat basis. It's putting up with, it's enduring instruction, discipline, on a regular basis because of its sound doctrine. Sound means healthy, nutritious, beneficial doctrine, teaching, instruction. I mean, that is why it's, it's, it's so encouraging, and the Lord reminds us all the time. Look at, look at all of you here. How many people have slept in this morning? How many people have woken up early to go do something else? You chose out of Sunday to come here, to be together. Why? Because you know this is good. This is it. This is where it's at. We know this is, this is the good stuff. 1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. If we, if we rid ourselves of God's word and we abandon the fellowship, the, the gathered assembly, as we read about in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, we will look, we will look for other things to satisfy our hearts. If he doesn't satisfy, if he doesn't fill up the void in Jake's heart, Jake will go find other ways and other things to fill it. What does it say here in verse 3? Wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate. Some of your Bibles might say heap up for themselves. Teachers, speakers, orators, gurus, sages, in accordance to their own desires. Invariably, we will heap up teachers that tickle our fancies, speakers that satisfy our sensations. And media that muddies our minds. Doesn't, isn't that true? If you're on social media, how many times have you found yourself scrolling? And it's like a drug. You're like, okay, i got to stop. How much time have I wasted? This is not beneficial. I'm going to stop. It's about to come. <laughs> Jake, I need you to take out the trash. Okay, I will. It's like growing up my mom. Jake, take out the trash. I will. You've been saying you will for the last three hours. You haven't done it. And it just sucks us in. And then when you're done, it feels like someone's sucked life out. Why? Because it's happened. Look at how much time I've wasted here. What, what benefit and fruit has it lent to my life? All of us have talked. More and more of us are like, I don't watch the news anymore. Why? Man, it fills us with nothing but anxiety, stress. It doesn't build us up like God's Word does. French philosopher and mathematician... More than French fries and fried foods comes out of France, fortunately. <laughs> Mathematician Blaise Pascal rightly said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart 
of man, which cannot be satisfied, satisfied by any created, created thing, but only by the God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. If we don't satisfy ourselves on his bread, his word, something else will. In November, uh, a November article from 2018, out of Newsweek, they reported this. The number of witches in American practicing Wicca religious rituals increased dramatically since the 1990s, with several recent studies indicating that there may be at least one and a half million witches across the country. A Trinity College study conducted in 1990 estimated only about 8,000 Wiccans in the U.S. We went from 8,000 in the 1990s to a million and a half in 2018. But the increase here, they go on to say, has been led by a rejection of mainstream Christianity among young Americans. When they say young, they mean millennials, my age. I'm like on the very oldest age. Basically, people who were like, 35 to 25, rejecting mainstream Christianity as well as, and it coincides with a rise in occultism. With a million and a half potential practicing witches across the U.S., witchcraft, based on these numbers, has more followers than the 1.4 million mainline members of the Presbyterian Church. If we won't walk and talk and learn from Jesus, we will with the devil. Journalist Julie Royce writes, Wicca has effectively repackaged witchcraft for millennial consumption. No longer is witchcraft and paganism satanic and demonic. No. It's a pre-Christian tradition that promotes free thought and understanding of earth and nature. Look at the world we live in. How much energy, how much how many speakers, icons, news, wherever you go, do you hear all this elevation of the earth? We need to do this for Mother Earth. I remember hearing Mother Earth a lot growing up. And have you noticed the growing validation? Here's the other thing, and I mentioned this last time we were in 2 Timothy. There's a growing validation, confirmation, affirmation through movies, shows, and news being given to intelligent life elsewhere. Again, look at your media. See, what we don't realize is the more we feed on this stuff, it desensitizes us to it. And we start to pick up on the verbiage. Without even realizing it, our behavior begins to change because there's already been a change in some way, shape, and form in our belief. Our behavior re re reveals where our hearts are at, what we truly believe. What our worldview is, is based on what we believe and what we think and dwell on. What are we thinking about based on what we watch, read, listen to? There's a growing fascination and validation of intelligent life in the universe. Aliens help us explain away God's existence. Why am I talking about this? Because he says here, verse 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, fables. The irony is this is being treated as a fable and, and story. This is a fairy tale. But intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, they came here millions of years ago and dropped a potion in some body of 
inhabitable, inhabitable water, inhospitable water, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the goo created life, life came out of rocks. That's not a myth, apparently. That's scientific. Communing with aliens, listen to this, especially you parents, communing with aliens has been growing in interest, and this is what's really weird. Oddly enough, these practitioners do so by practicing forms of spiritual meditation. Literally, out of their own mouth, they talk about channeling aliens' thoughts and voices. I remember when I started to see this last several years, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't the X-Files anymore. We're beyond that. What, what in the world does paganism have to do with ufology, aliens? It starts to become more evident that a lot of the stuff we see promoted with this extraterrestrial stuff is really what I believe the Bible calls doctrines of demons. And we're subtly being desensitized to it through media, through pop culture. 1 Timothy 4.1 the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who, who forbid marriage, today we redefine it. Tomorrow we forbid it. Mark my words on that. He said it. And... I want to say this also for anyone who listens to this, especially people my age and younger, marriage according to God's word is between one man, one woman for life. Anything outside of that as per God's word isn't marriage. We can call it that if we want, but that doesn't make it so, right? I can say the sun is in the sky, but clearly all of you are like, no, we live in the Northwest. It's just clouds, Jake. <laughs> he goes on and says in 1 Timothy 4, Verse 3, they advocate abstaining from foods, listen to that, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There is, and I'm going to step on some toes here, it's not my intention, there's an agenda behind today's veganism. I know that. I say that confidently. Now, can you love Jesus and be a vegan? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's one place in the world I could survive being a vegan. It'd be India. Man, their flavor's out of this world. Veganism's not the issue any more than uh, money's the issue. That's not the issue. It's what it's rooted to. It's what motivates it. Our veganism today is rooted in idol worship, where animals are even more important than human life. And we, we consider humanely slaughtering and eating a chicken or a cow more valuable than a, killing an unborn baby. I rest my case. Verse 4 out of 1 Timothy 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, it's set apart, it's made holy by means of the word of God and prayer. I had some students years back, and they were getting on the veganism train. I think one of them still is, hard charging. Um, and I was uh, talking in Genesis. What did, what did God create for us originally to eat? Veggies, fruits, nuts, seeds. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we got to Genesis chapter 9. And I said, but under the Noahic covenant, which still exists today, God has condoned and even blessed humanely killing and eating animals. 
That's what his word says. So again, we've got to take our philosophies, our ideas, our traditions, our dearly held concepts and compare them up against the word. That's the word endure in verse three, to hold against. Will we hold ourselves against his word? God gives permission to abstain or enjoy meat in Romans 14, one through three. That's his word. Now again, if you would rather eat just veggies, plants, raw food, go for it. Do it for the right reason. And the same goes for us who eat meat. Um, we need to be mindful of what we consume, physically and spiritually. So how do we preserve ourselves against these subtle delusions of demons? Look at verse 5. He says, Paul writes to Timothy, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's kind of funny, verses three through four is kind of like a side note. It's almost like an addendum. Hang on a second before I continue. Know this. How do we preserve against these things? Be sober. Be sober. It means what it says. In all things, though, be sober. Don't pollute our, our hearts with the values and desires of the world. 1 John 2, 15. If anyone, who loves, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Are there things in my life that I love that contradict or love more than God? We endure. Not like verse 3. Verse 5, we endure. That has to do with suffering for the cause of Christ. And Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Don't suffer because you did something stupid. <laughs> That doesn't help Jesus' goals at all. Matter of fact, it might defame his name. Be careful in the manner in which you bear his name. But suffer for the cause of Christ. That's the gospel. Why did all of Jesus' apostles pass away except for one? They died for the sake of the gospel. We live in times that are getting harder for us to stay true to God's values. His word. We might have to make sacrifices for the sake of doing what is right by his word. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. This is how we endure. We're sober. We endure. We, we take up the cause of Christ and suffer if need be, and we do the work of an evangelist. Pastor Greg Laurie said this, when we make Christ known to others, we know him better ourselves. And I can say that for my own life. Man, I am blessed more than anyone else when I have to study to teach. Right, Jim? Man, we, we're, we're in it. We're soaking this stuff up. We have to wear it first, as it's been said. And then he says, how do we endure? Fulfill your ministry. Don't study about it, fulfill it. Ministry just means service. So what was Timothy's service? Ephesians 4.12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Rick's job, Les's job, Brandy's job, Cam's job, our shepherd's jobs. It's ultimately all for one thing, to equip and build up disciples who follow Jesus to serve the goal of the gospel. I have an article, actually I have two, that hang over my desk as a reminder. The first one is, is your youth ministry dis actually discipling teens? 
If all it is is the flash in the pan and smoke and mirrors, and you've got throngs of students coming out, and Jake, you bring a powerful word, and wow, there's so much sensation stirred up. But if they're not actually being equipped, practically shown day in and day out, in season and out of season, what it looks like to follow Jesus, all of it's for naught. I've seen many youth ministries just, or the lives of those kids once they graduate and they leave the youth ministry, they go into the world because they haven't been formed, they haven't been modeled, they haven't been shown what it looks like to follow Jesus. The other article I have says, Pastor, don't change the gospel. Don't change the gospel. Paul was convinced, I'm not going to come in eloquence. I'm not going to speak like some great orator. I'm going to come pure and simple in God's word by the demonstration of the Spirit of God. Now look at verse 6 with me. Um, yeah, verse 6. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. That's a goal I have in my life. I don't know how much time I have left, but based on human recollection, I got a lot of time left, should he decide. That's a goal I have. Bible scholars agree this was Paul's last letter before he was executed. A drink offering was not foreign to Hebrew disciples. They understood it. It was part of the Mosaic law. You see drink offerings come up in Exodus chapter 29, verse 40 through 41, Leviticus 23, verse 13. And a pastor and Bible scholar, David Guzik, sheds more light on the Roman culture that Paul wrote this in. There was also a Roman idea here. Roman meals were ended with a libation, a sacrificial ritual to the gods. A cup was taken of wine, and it was poured out before the gods. In this sense, Paul was saying, the day of my life is done. The meal of my ministry is just about over, and I'm being poured out unto God. Again, Paul was modeling to Timothy what it meant to sacrifice for the glory of God's gospel. Paul's gospel message of Jesus reached all the way to the upper echelons. Imagine, I've got an audience with the emperor and his court, and that would be the final thing, that big thing that would happen before uh, Paul had his head lopped off. Sometimes the glory comes at our own sacrifice. Often it does, actually. And the interesting thing, and I think we can all agree, I believe Paul felt a sincere sense of release. I'm there. He sees the finish line. He's almost there. He's not dreading it. I know. I know what that feels like. I remember being in high school, and every so often we get timed on the mile run, and I hated it. I was a lot healthier back then. I hated it. I'm compared to, you know, Jose over here who's like five foot six and 115 pounds soaking wet, all of his muscles in his legs. His lungs are the size of a greyhound. I'm like, this is depressing. I don't want to run with this guy. <laughs> but it's funny how as I got on my last lap around the track, my speed increased. Why? I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to cross that finish. It was done. It was done. I think Paul was sprinting his heart out to the finish. Paul faithfully fought for Jesus' gospel. He diligently labored the harvest of souls, preparing 
for Jesus' coming, for his appearing. Verse 8. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And I want to say this to all of us. And not only to Paul, but also to all who love his appearing. It might be hard for us to say, yeah, I've got this crown waiting for me. But let's just, let's just let God's word say it. All who love Jesus' appearing, what is our reward? We know that we get the crown of righteousness. We long for that. We aim for that. Our life's pursuit is for that purpose. And there are two types of crowns mentioned in Scripture. One belongs solely to the King of Kings. Only Jesus gets to wear that one. But the other is a victor's crown. We talked about it here. The seed of Christ. I believe, no, it's not here in this verse. But it's called the Bema Seat. And those who believe in Jesus are presented at the Bema Seat. This victor's crown is, goes to those who finish the race of life. Paul played by the rules. Over there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he mentions these metaphors. Verse 4, soldier. Verse 5, an athlete. Verse 6, a farmer. And he played by the rules like a disciplined athlete. He fought the gospel for the gospel, and he abided in God's word keeping Jesus' commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There are rewards for serving Jesus, absolutely. And like any athlete, we should want to obtain those. If you go into a sport, hopefully your goal isn't just to, you know, get by. Hopefully there's an inspiration, a goal in entering that athletic competition. We should want to obtain as many crowns as we can, but to what end? Again, if everything we do is based on our best efforts, then we fail to realize and receive the power of God's grace. Here in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders will fall down before Jesus who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and because of you they were created. I think Rick joked about this. How do we throw crowns and just keep on throwing them? Because it says whenever you know, they praise, they throw their crowns. Maybe there's like a supernatural conveyor belt. You throw the crown and you're like a kid, like, like at a bowling alley. Whew, strike every time, and then you wait for the ball. Hang on, Jesus, another strike for you. Yeah. I think we're, it's like kids. Kids with their dad and their mom, little kids. We're going to be loving it. We're going to be laughing and singing and loving his presence together on a continual basis. Like a child who receives gifts and rewards from their parents because they honored and obeyed their parents. The child delights in using those gifts to honor the parents. I've shared stories about that. I didn't have any money. My dad would give me money. Why? So I could go get him a Christmas gift. <laughs> what if I told you, you have the power to give God a birthday gift? Kind of like the three wise men. They came from the east to meet Jesus and present before him these gifts. And the greatest gift you could ever give that would bless his heart is your own. Second only to that is walking with Jesus through life, joining him in sharing his good news with those you meet. 
giving all the glory to the gospel of Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand here. I want to share something. Worship team, you can come up. Um, I've shared something repeatedly as I've taught through it because it's been repeated to me over and over in 2 Timothy. Two things stand out. The vital imperative of God's word. I read through 2 Timothy, being a guy who teaches the word with our students and has had some time to do it, and boil it down, it's like, read, be in the word, preach the word, live by the word, the word, the word, the word. And you cannot do it without the power of his spirit, his spirit, his spirit. Jesus taught with authority because he worked and lived and walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the spirit... We would have no written word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. The Holy Spirit has inspired this that we have this morning. And without the word of God, we wouldn't have the gift of his spirit. John 20, verse 20. It's both and. This world and everything in it will pass away. But God's word remains. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do we realize what time it is. Can we see the signs of the seasons we live in? We stand, I believe, on the brink of eternity as the church. Do we look forward to his coming? Or do we ignore it? Or are we afraid of it? C.T. Studd once said, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord, we want to, uh, by the end of our life, we want to live with eager anticipation the way we see our brother Paul did. He couldn't wait to see you. He stood, he, he was in that prison with joy because he was going to get to see you soon. But until that day, he was given every effort of his life focused singularly on sharing, proclaiming, teaching your gospel. That is why you came, Jesus, to reveal the gospel to us, the good news of who you are, so that we might have life with you forever. If there is anyone who has heard this today or hears this later on who wants that peace and security for their life now and forever, pray this with me. Jesus, I realize I don't have what it takes, but I believe that you are the Son of God who came down from heaven, who fulfilled your promised word, you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe in your death and your burial and your resurrection. And I yoke myself to you, word of God, Jesus, that wherever you are, I will be with you. And for those of us who know you, help us to just continue to be diligent in your gospel. Father, glorify your name. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.